them a job that would enable them to use their gifts and to provide for their families. I pray for the guys that are in jobs that they don't enjoy. I pray, Lord, that uh, they would be willing to learn the lessons that you have for them in this season of life. It probably won't always be this way, but it's this way now. Encourage them and help them to have thankful hearts and thankful spirits in the midst of the difficulty. And for the guys that are working and enjoy their work, Lord, we're just blessed by you. And we take it as a blessing, and we take it as a great kindness in our lives. Father, we uh, want to be grateful men. We want to be thankful men. We also want to be teachable men. Uh, we're going to open your book and start a new study tonight. And uh, Lord, we don't want this to be superficial. Uh, we don't want to be just hearers. We want to be doers. We want to put this stuff into practice. We don't want our, 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 our faith to be formal and to be cold. We want it to be real and warm and uh, quick to be applied. So enable us tonight, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. You guys hear that music? I hear music. Is that coming out of those speakers, Jim? No, it's coming out of that wall. It's coming out of that wall? Okay. I need three of you guys to go over there and take care of that music. No, I'm kidding. It's all right. Just shut them down over there. That's all you need to do. Uh, it's been said that every man is king of his castle. It's been said. <laughs> and that's, yeah, by, by someone who wasn't married. That, that's, that's who said that. Uh, but that's a pretty good metaphor, because if you're married, uh, you're the king, uh, and you got a queen. Uh, you got a son, he's a prince, sometimes, and uh, you got a daughter, well, she's the princess. Uh, that's a pretty good metaphor, it's a pretty good analogy. We had the opportunity last month to spend some time in England, and uh, I, I had no idea how many castles there were in England. A lot of castles, about as many castles in England as there are Fox and Jacobs homes in Texas. They're, they're everywhere. Uh, they were big on castles. Now, you may not have a castle. You just may have a regular home. But, uh, you know, in a sense, if you've got a family, uh, that's your kingdom. Uh, that's your, what, what is a kingdom? A, a kingdom was the area of responsibility that a king was given to steward. So if you're a husband, if you're a father, you've got a responsibility, you've got a family, you've got a kingdom. Um, before we went to England, I made it a, a point to read uh, Winston Churchill's four-volume work called A History of English-Speaking Peoples. And it starts with the Romans when they went to, it starts with Julius Caesar when he went to Britain, to that island. And then it goes from there. Fascinating history. So much of what I read in those four volumes were about kings. It's amazing whenever you read history, you're going to read about kings. Because throughout the ages, we've had kings and we've had emperors. Uh, we don't have a king. We don't have emperors. We have a president. Uh, but there's always someone that's in authority. Um, we're going to start a study tonight that... Uh, I'm going to title, uh, Living Lessons from Dead Kings. 
Because, you know, not only are there kings throughout history, but there are kings in a section of your Bible. There's a book called First and Second Kings. And then along with that is uh, uh, First and Second Chronicles, which chronicles those kings from a, another angle and another perspective. You've got the books of Samuel that talk about uh, uh, Saul and David, uh, the first king and the second king, and then we get into Solomon. Uh, uh, those are dead kings that have a wealth of information for us uh, who, who are now living. Uh, Winston Churchill was prime minister of England twice. The first time, as you know, was during World War II. And at a certain point, one of his critics was not real pleased with some of the, um, with some of the uh, decisions that Churchill was making. He was alarmed that he wasn't making decisions that would prove to be in the interest of England in the midst of this war. And he confronted Churchill. Churchill listened to him, and Churchill looked him in the eye, and Churchill said, history will be my judge. And I intend to write the history. <laughs> and he did. Uh, Churchill wrote six volumes that's called The History of World War II. Uh, he was the man in World War II. Uh, and he wrote the history. Uh, uh, we're living today, and today we made history. We don't think of it as that way. We just got up and went about our day and went to work and had appointments and had to write some reports and make some sales calls. You see? Yeah, but see, when you go to bed tonight, this day's over, and what you did today then becomes history, you see. Uh, we're living out history. Most of us will never write any volumes on history, like Churchill did. But in a sense, we are writing history by the way we live our lives. Uh, when we're dead and gone, somebody is going to look back on our history. Uh, there's going to be a, a service that will be conducted with friends and family, and things will be said. More importantly, things will be thought uh, about your history and about my history. We're making history, in other words. Uh, Churchill's off the scene. Hitler's off the scene, FDR is off the scene, we're on the scene, uh, writing the history of our lives. Uh, therefore, there's great wisdom in looking into the scriptures, uh, into the lives of these kings that played such a pivotal role in the life of the nation that God had established. Uh, there, there, are, there is a wealth of information to learn from the lives of these dead kings, both from a positive standpoint and from a negative standpoint. After David, there were 40 kings that ruled in Judah, which was the southern kingdom, and in Israel, which was the northern kingdom. All of the kings in the north were absolute losers. Uh, worthless, quite frankly, self-centered, godless, wicked men. All of them. All of them. In the south, in the southern kingdom, uh, there were a handful that were good kings. The majority of them weren't. But all of those guys lived and breathed and got up, just as you did today, 
They were given a stewardship. They were given a responsibility. They had a queen. They had some kids. Uh, every day they got up and they chose what they were going to write that day about their lives. That's what we're doing. Um, I'm excited about this study. I really am. I've been looking at these guys all summer, and I've been learning a ton. Uh, I've been sobered a lot by what I've read. Uh, it, it, when you study these guys, it motivates you to really uh, guard your heart, to, to look closely at your heart, to look closely at your motivations. Uh, because the decisions that are made on what seems to be insignificant days turn out to have incredibly significant circumstances. Um, you take your Bibles and turn with me, if you would, to Second Chronicles. This is where we're going to begin our study. Um, we're not going to begin with Saul. You would think, now that's the place to begin, because Saul was the first king of Israel. Um, most of you know about Saul. Saul was a, uh, generally speaking, he was a failure as a king. In fact, because of his consistent disobedience, God finally took the kingdom away from him and then gave it to David. Uh, David really was the pinnacle. Uh, he was the model for all of the kings that were to follow. David was top of the heap. But even David uh, was flawed. David, uh, as you know, got involved in, in sin with Bathsheba, tried to cover it, uh, turned himself into a murderer, uh, made a huge mistake. He had been experiencing God's blessing in every area of his life. He was absolutely undefeated in battle. And then in a moment of weakness, in a moment of leisure, he gave in to temptation. Uh, but David was a man after God's own heart. Uh, when he was confronted by Nathan, he was broken, he was uh, repentant, he was contrite, and, uh, uh, and he received God's forgiveness. But there were consequences that accrued into his life. Now this woman that he was involved with was, Bath, was Bathsheba, and she was pregnant by David, and that's why he tried to get her husband back from the battlefield to get him at home with her so that he could cover up his sin and the fact that she, she was pregnant. But uh, he, uh, Uriah was just had too much character. And he gave his report to David. David said, hey, good job, glad you're home. Go see your wife. And he said, well, uh, thank you. He went home, but he didn't sleep with his wife. Because you see, if uh, his men couldn't be with their wives, he wasn't going to be with his wife. So David was frustrated when he found out about that, had to work it out. So when the guy got back to the field, he sent a letter to Joab saying, put this guy right on the front lines by the wall. So he was killed. After he was killed, after an appropriate amount of time, then he took Bathsheba as his wife. She was pregnant. The baby was born, but the baby was sick. The baby died. Uh, after that baby died, she became pregnant again with Solomon who became the third king of Israel. We're not going to start with Saul. We're not going to start with David in our study. And we're not going to start with Solomon. Um, we're going to start 
with Solomon's son, a guy by the name of Rehoboam. Uh, now, why are we going to start there? Uh, we're going to start there because uh, Rehoboam was, was a, a pivotal figure in the history of all the kings of Israel. Now, who was this guy? Well, his, his story is told beginning in Second uh, Chronicles chapter 10. Um, and we're going to look at him tonight. Winston Churchill, uh, I'm quoting freely from him tonight, but uh, Churchill, when he was in Parliament, referred one time, uh, on one occasion, to the Prime Minister, who was uh, uh, Clement uh, Attlee. And he said of uh, the Prime Minister, he said of Mr. Attlee, Mr. Attlee is a very modest man, and he has much to be modest about. <laughs> Now, that's a great description of Rehoboam. Uh, Rehoboam had much to be modest about. As a matter of fact, as we're going to see, uh, Rehoboam had much to be ashamed about. So you got Saul, then you got David, uh, then you've got, uh, you've got Solomon. Those guys were all kings. Now, you know what? They had a little bigger kingdom than you've got or I've got. But may I remind you guys? Because you're men, because you're husbands, because you're fathers, God has placed you in spiritual leadership over your family. It has been said that every family is a small civilization. That's a great insight. Every family is a small civilization. Uh, so our, our civilization, our kingdoms are smaller than Saul or David or Jonathan. Yet, nevertheless, we've got a stewardship just as they had a stewardship uh, before God. We're going to talk about Rehoboam, but I want to set the context about Rehoboam. Now, who was this guy? Well, to begin with, he was David's grandson. Okay? Get that real firm in your mind. One of David's grandsons. He was Solomon's son. Uh, we're going to look at Rehoboam, and we're going to see that uh, his life and his example was not sterling at all, which is a tragedy because of the heritage that he had been given. Um, turn with me, if you would, to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy 6 is a, is a key passage in the Old Testament. Uh, it has been referred to at times as the Great Commission of the Old Testament. <clears throat> in, in Deuteronomy 6, the men of Israel are being addressed. Um, I, love the, I love the term Deuteronomy. I love the name. Uh, I've mentioned this before in here. Uh, what does Deuteronomy mean? It comes from two words, deutero, which means second and nomos, which means law. So Deuteronomy is the book of the second law. You say, well, well, wait a minute, what about the original law that God gave through Moses? Was there another, another law? No. Uh, what you've got in Deuteronomy is you have, got, well, let's just back up a little bit. When, when, they, when Moses led the people of, of Israel out of, the, out of Egypt, and they're going to go to the promised land, it should just have been a matter of months before they got there. But it didn't take them months. It took them 40 years 
if you recall, because when they sent the 12 spies into the land to check it out, you guys remember this? You guys remember this? They sent 12 spies into the land. They go check it out, reconnaissance mission. They send one guy from each tribe. They come back. They give a report. They said, it's an unbelievable land that God's going to give us. It's full of the ites. It's full of giants. There's a literal race of giants. And 10 out of the 12 guys said, we can't take those giants. Now, Joshua and Caleb said, yeah, but God will fight for us, and he'll go ahead of us, and we'll defeat them. But the 10 influenced the rest of the congregation. Because of the sin of the 10, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. So what's Deuteronomy all about? What's this second law? Well, what is happening is that towards the end of the 40 years, what Moses is doing is that God is speaking through Moses to a new generation of leaders. That old generation had died out. The men who are now the leaders of, uh, of Israel, who are uh, 40, 45, you see... Uh, well, the guy who's 45, when the 12 spies went in and came back and gave the report, he was five. Now he's 45. See, what's happening is Deuteronomos is that Moses is stating the original law for a second time to a new generation of leaders. Who's going to be leading this church in 40 years? Some of you are hoping Chuck will. <laughs> But I don't think that's going to happen. He's in good shape. He's not in that good of shape. You see? Jim, you're going to be around in 40 years? I don't think so, Jim. I mean, I'm for you, but I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> What's going to have to happen is they're going to, we, we, got, we got little guys running around here in the nursery and little guys on Sunday with snot coming out of their nose. <laughs> little guys at your house. Some of your grandsons are going to be leading the ministry here at this church. You see, because there's going to be another generation in 40 years. That's what Deuteronomos is all about, Deuteronomy. So in Deuteronomy 6, to this new generation of leaders whose fathers failed, Moses says to these guys, now this is the commandments, the statutes, and the judgments, which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you, that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess. Now catch this. So that you and your son... And what? And your grandson might fear the Lord, your God, to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be prolonged. Now, why do I bring this up? I bring it up because we're going to look at Rehoboam, who was the grandson of David. You see, God has given us uh, a mandate as men. We're to be spiritual leaders of our families, you see. And for a lot of us, that's a little threatening because... Our dads weren't spiritual leaders. If your dad wasn't a spiritual leader, then how do you know what a spiritual leader does? One of the things I saw one day in England, uh, we were on one of those double-decker buses, you know, one of the deals you get a quick tour, and we were in the city of Bath, or Bath. I don't know how you pronounce it, but it was a, a city the Romans, you know, set up when they were over there. And we're, you know, double-decker bus, you know, an hour, they take you around, you see Jane Austen's home and all this different stuff. And, uh, and they're showing us all this stuff, and as we're zipping along, I look over and there's a park, and these guys are playing cricket. And, and, you know, there was something on the right that was historic, but I'm watching the guys play cricket. Because they throw that ball, and they don't throw it in like a baseball, but they throw it and it bounces in. I didn't know that. 
I was trying to watch that guy hit, and then I was trying to watch which way he went because I'd never seen cricket before. If someone had to pull this off that bus and say, hey, uh, these guys are all sick with the flu. We need you guys to step in. I'd be in trouble because, see, I've never seen cricket. I don't know what you do in a cricket match. Uh, you hit the thing. Which way? Do you run left? Do you run right? Do you run straight ahead? What do you do? I have no idea. I've never seen it. If your father was not a spiritual leader, see, for someone to say you need to be the spiritual leader of your family is somewhat threatening because you've never seen it in operation. So what do you do? Well, you look at the scriptures and you look at Christ. You see? Because he's our model. He's our example. Uh, he shows me what it is to be a man. He tells me what it is uh, in regard to how I should treat my wife. Maybe your dad didn't treat your mom real well. Well, when I read Ephesians, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church, you see. Um, these guys were called to be the spiritual leaders of their family. We tend to think of our spiritual leadership. How many of you guys have kids still at home that you're raising? Okay. All right, so see, your focus, what your focus is, your focus is on raising those kids. And that's good. But see, the Scripture's focus is broader. It's not you and your son and your daughter. It's you and your son and your grandson. That's pretty wild. See, what that's saying is there's a responsibility. Um, I've talked about this before. Basically, there's a responsibility there for the next hundred years for each of us. Because by the time you're dead and gone and your grandson is up and functioning and running and 40 years old, that's, you know, you're talking a hundred-year stretch. Here's what I'm trying to say to you. Um, by your decisions and by your life today, you made history. You wrote history. Uh, the way we live today affects generations yet to come. It has long-term consequences. Because what's happening is your kids are watching you. And kids tend to implement what they see. And then they're going to have kids. Uh, what I want to say to you is this. Is that David was a man after God's own heart. But David had some serious flaws in his life, quite frankly, that he did not address. Uh, David always had a weakness for women. Uh, in Deuteronomy 17, 17, uh, there were some instructions given concerning the king of Israel. And you're in Deuteronomy 6. Flip over to Deuteronomy 17, 17. And what you will see there is that one of the instructions for the king of Israel is that he was not to multiply wives. He was not to have more than one wife. Well, David had at least eight wives. Some scholars think that he had perhaps as many as 12. So uh, David had all these kids by all these different women. So then David dies, hands off the throne. Solomon is the one chosen by God to follow his father and take over the kingdom. You know how... Uh, Sons always try to outdo their fathers. Well, Solomon did that. Uh, David had at least eight wives. Solomon had 700 wives. That's unbelievable. 
700 wives. Now, why was he doing that? Well, a lot of it had to do with politics. The way one expanded one's kingdom was to intermarry with other nations and with other kings and with other rulers because you'd take a wife and you'd have a political alliance and your father-in-law probably isn't going to come after you because it's going to have repercussions for his daughter. That's what was behind it. It was a political move. Uh, what happened, Solomon had a great start. Solomon had a heart for God. Solomon was sold out. But towards the end of his life, Solomon's heart was turned by these women who were wicked women who didn't love the Lord God. They were women that came from other cultures with other religions. Um, so then Solomon dies, and who gets the throne? Rehoboam. Now, who's this guy? Well, his mother was an Ammonite. Her name was Naamah. You can read about her just in, in brief mention in 2 Chronicles 12, 13. Uh, she was a worshiper of a false god named Moloch. Um, uh, so she was not a believer. She did not give him spiritual training. What I'm trying to say to you guys, as, as we, before we even get started in looking at this guy, Rehoboam, what, what, I, what I want you to see is this, is that David and Solomon failed miserably in the leadership they should have given their families. They really did. Um, now, as men, we, we all fall short. We've all made mistakes. Every guy in this room is screwed up in regard to your family. You made mistakes, you should go back and undo. Uh, this was a perpetual practice with both David and with Solomon. Let me ask you something. Uh, if you know anything about David's family, because of the model that David set, for instance, one of the things that happened, he had a son named Absalom, who had a daughter, uh, who had a sister named Tamar. But he had another kid who saw Tamar and lusted after her and wanted to have sex with her. And one day faked that he was sick so that Tamar would come in and take care of him. And he said, hey, get in bed with me. And she wouldn't do it. And he went ahead and raped her. You believe that? Raped his half-sister. Uh, two years later, Absalom throws his party, says, hey, come on with me, and kills the guy. That was just the beginning for David's family. Well, I'll get into this later on some of these other kings. David was a guy who never seemed to say no to his kids, never seemed to discipline his kids, never seemed to give his kids structure. And what I'm saying to you is, is that that had dividends, negative dividends, that accrued into his family line just two generations down the road. Um, you know, it's never too late to start living out the truth. I don't care how old you are. I run into guys all the time and they say, man, you know, Steve, my kids are up and married and, man, I blew it. I worked all the time, didn't have a relationship. I was never around. Well, you know what? You're around now. Your kid doesn't have to be eight years old to have a relationship with your kid. Your son can be 43 years old and you can have a relationship with him. I mean, aren't you, you're still alive, right? You're still breathing. Uh, well, then you can have a relationship with him. And you know, the great thing about the Lord is this. Maybe maybe you screwed up for you. I run into guys all the time. Say, I mean, they'll, they'll sob. 
Man, I, I missed all those years. I, I, I totally blew it. I was not a spirit. I was a horrible model. I was an adulterer. I was in I showed my kids everything that shouldn't be done. But Christ has come into my life and He's changed me. And, and, and these men live with deep regret. There's a great verse in Joel 2.25. And this is for you guys that have regrets over how you raised your kids. I want to give you some hope. You know what Joel 2.25 says? It says, In the years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore. That's the great thing about God. Because, you know, that was written to, to the people when there was a time of great plague and great drought, and they would plant and they would lose their crops. Yeah, hey, remember the Dust Bowl in, in, in Oklahoma and Texas and Arkansas in the, in the 30s? And they'd plant and nothing would happen. And it was year after year after year, five, six, seven, eight, nine years without a crop coming in. Uh, that'll wipe you. You're finished. You're done. You know the great thing about God? The years which the locusts have eaten, I will restore. I remember reading Martin Lloyd-Jones one time, and he said, the great thing about God is that God can give you 10 years in one year. Did you lose 10 years with your kids? Did you lose 20 years with your kids? Well, you know what I'd do if I were you? I'd start beseeching the throne of Almighty God. God, would you be so gracious to me as to restore the years which the locusts have eaten? And you start working on that relationship. You start calling them. You start getting, you're, you're probably going to have to ask for some forgiveness at some point. And don't expect it all to happen just like that. You're going to have to build it. But you start moving in the right direction. And God can restore those years, guys. That'll give you hope. It gives you something to pray about. That gives you something to look forward to. Now, you know, the other thing you can do is just stay connected with those kids. I'm not going to take a lot of time on this. Uh, I've quoted from this before. This is, uh, this is a book I've got called The Selected Letters of uh, Theodore Roosevelt. It contains a thousand letters that he wrote. Uh, he wrote over a hundred thousand letters in his lifetime. He was always writing. And he was writing everybody. This guy was busy. President of the United States. Um, he was always writing to his children. In fact, there's one letter in here. He writes to his son. And uh, his son is away uh, in the army. And uh, his son is married, and uh, he's just he's checking, in with, he's checking in with Quentin. I won't read you the whole letter. But uh, he basically says, uh, Flora spoke to Ethel yesterday of the fact that you only wrote rarely to her. She made no complaint, but she knows that some of her friends receive three or four letters a week from their lovers or husbands. Now, of course, you may not keep Flora anyhow, saying that tongue-in-cheek, but if you wish to lose her, continue to be an infrequent correspondent. <laughs> However, if you wish to keep her, write her letters, interesting letters and love letters, at least three times a week. Write no matter how tired you are. No matter how convenient it is, write if you're smashed up in a hospital. Write when you are doing your most dangerous stunts. Write when your work is most irksome and disheartening. Write all the time. Write enough letters to allow for half of them being lost. There's a guy who stayed connected with his children. There's a guy, president of the United a king, who took seriously the mandate to lead his family and to give direction to his children and 
to their children. That's what I'm talking about. You see? Is it work? Yeah. But it's a good kind of work. So you get on the phone. You email. This is, practice. This is called application. Does this make any sense, guys? See, this stuff can be done. You can reestablish uh, and connect with them, even if they're in California, even if they're in Canada, wherever they are. You see? You just have to be purposeful. What I'm saying to you is, David and Jonathan did not do that, and, and it was tragic. Who did I say? I said Jonathan. Thanks. David and Solomon did not do that, and as a result, you get a guy like Rehoboam. Now, I took 18 rolls of film in England. I'm going to ask the ushers to come and pass out the pictures. <laughs> I'm not going to do that. But if you were to come over to the house, I might pull a few out for you. I wouldn't show you all of, all of them just because I don't want to bore you. But I might show you a few real key pictures that we took uh, when we were in England. Uh, that's kind of what we're going to do with Rehoboam. Uh, this guy's got a fair amount of turf written about his life. What we're going to do is we're going to look at some of the snapshots of this guy. Because remember, this guy had a kingdom. This guy had a domain. You've got a kingdom. You've got a domain. Uh, we're reading his history. You're writing history. Uh, it begins with Second Chronicles 10. So let's go back over there. And in Second Chronicles 10, we're going to get the scoop. And, and this is a pivotal historic moment in the life of the nation. Uh, let's pick up in 9, chapter 9, uh, verse 30. And Solomon reigned 40 years in Jerusalem over all Israel. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of his father David. And his son Rehoboam reigned in his place. Now, 10, verse 1. Then Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. So he goes up north a little bit to this city. And a lot of significant things historically had happened there. And we're not exactly sure what the reason was they met in this city, but, but they did. And it came about when Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was in Egypt where he had fled from the presence of King Solomon, that Jeroboam returned from Egypt. Now we're going to get to Jeroboam probably next week. So we'll just table him for a little bit. So they sent and summoned him. When Jeroboam and all Israel came, they spoke to Rehoboam, saying, and when it says Jeroboam and all Israel, it's talking about the northern tribes. See, down in the south, you got Jerusalem, and you had uh, uh, Judah, and you had Benjamin. But when it's talking about all of Israel, it's talking about the rest of the ten tribes that were up in the north. So they all come down uh, to meet Rehoboam, and they've got something to say to him in verse 4. They say, your father made our yoke hard. Now therefore lighten the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke which he put on us and we will serve you. And he said to them, return to me again in three days. So the people uh, departed. Now let's stop right there. Uh, the first thing out of their mouths is, is the fact that they said, hey, your dad, Solomon, made our life hard. And the fact of the matter is Solomon did make their life hard. Because if you recall anything about Solomon, Solomon was a builder. Solomon was unbelievable. He built the infrastructure of Israel. He built the temple. Most amazing structure that there's ever been. Uh, it would take your breath away. It's where the, the presence of God was in the Holy of Holies in Jerusalem. Solomon's temple. Queen of Sheba saw it all. There was no spirit left in her. 
an amazing place. But he had all these other projects. And, and, and what happened was, is that he had to have people, people had to work to make those things happen. People had to pay taxes. Um, one commentator says, the heavy yoke Solomon had imposed on the Israelites consisted of taxation, forced labor, and other burdens. Uh, it took a lot of manpower. It took a lot of taxes. Uh, Solomon was a tough king to be under. And they acknowledged that. They said, hey, your dad put a hard thing on us. Would you lighten the load? He says, I'll get back to you in three days. Verse 6. Then King Rehoboam consulted with the elders who had served his father Solomon while he was still alive, saying, how do you counsel me to answer this people? And they spoke to him, saying, if you will be kind to this people and please them and speak good words to them, then they will be your servants forever. That's not a bad deal. Get to verse 8. But he forsook the counsel of the elders, which they had given him, and consulted with the young men who grew up with him and served him. Now, there's a play on words here. Because when Rehoboam consulted with these young men who grew up with him, Rehoboam was 41 years old. Uh, he wasn't young in age. He was young in character. He was an emotional and spiritual midget, is what this guy was. He'd had a cush life. He'd been spoiled. He'd had everything he ever wanted. He'd been served. Probably never worked a day in his life. Had no idea what the people were dealing with. So he talks to the young men who had grown up with him. So who are these guys? They're his buddies. These guys are all in their 40s. You ever, you ever see guys in their 40s that act like they're 15? You see them all the time. They're still partying. You know, they're still trying to pick up chicks. They're, they're, they're acting like a bunch of... These guys have never grown up. They're 40-year-old adolescents. They're not men. They've never gotten out of puberty emotionally or spiritually or mentally. They're a bunch of junior high guys in 40-year-old bodies. That's what Rehoboam and his buddies were. So they weren't young men chronologically. They were just young in maturity. They were wusses is what they were. They were self-centered, spoiled guys... That's who they were. So he consults with these guys. So what do these guys say? So he said to them, verse 9, what counsel do you give me that we may answer the people? Um, uh, who have spoken, saying, lighten the, load, the yoke which your father put on us. And the young men who grew up with him spoke to him, saying, thus you shall say to the people who spoke to you, saying, your father made our yoke heavy, but you make it lighter for us. Thus you shall say to them, my little finger is thicker than my father's loins. You can probably figure out what he's saying there. Whereas my father loaded you with a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpion. A scorpion was a term for a whip that had metal embedded in the ends. He had a whip. I got a real whip. You think he was tough? You ain't seen nothing yet. Um, here's a principle about Rehoboam. Rehoboam had a lousy start because he listened to the wrong advisors. Every king has advisors. You've got advisors. You're listening to somebody. I'm listening to somebody. Uh, President Bush is listening to somebody. He's got a, ca a cabinet. He's got counselors. He's got advisors. Uh, every man has got advisors. Even if he thinks he doesn't, you're listening to somebody. This guy, out of the blocks, had a horrible start because he listened to the wrong people. Uh, 
Lockyer, Herbert Lockyer says this about this guy. He says, he was obsessed with the false premise that the subjects existed for the sovereign and not the sovereign for the subjects. Uh, he didn't understand that leadership is servanthood. And a lot of guys don't understand that. I think leadership is power. Leadership is looking out for number one. Ultimately, leadership is doing what's best for others instead of what's best for you. This guy didn't get that. So he listens to the wrong guys, and he comes back three days later, and let's see now the decision that he's going to render to these guys. Uh, look at verse 12. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam on the third day as the king had directed, saying, Return to me on the third day. And the king answered them harshly. And King Rehoboam forsook the counsel of the elders. And he spoke to them according to the advice of the young men. My father made your yoke heavy. I will add to it. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Catch 15. So the king did not listen to the people. For it was a turn of events from God that the Lord might establish his word, which he had spoke through Ahijah, the Shilonite, to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. We'll get into that next week. In other words, uh, you know, God's behind everything. God works everything for his purpose. This guy's making a bad move. This guy's making a bad decision. Does a bad decision ever frustrate the plan of God? No. History's full of bad decisions. But there is a plan for the ages, and God's plan marches on. Rulers and kings and authorities do not get in the way of God's plan. They cooperate. Even when they're in sin and even when they're wicked and when they're, even they're evil, God just uses it and puts it into the tapestry that he's weaving that makes no sense to us. When you're in England, you see all these tapestries. You go in all these castles, they all got tapestries. These things are about 90 feet tall, about 40 feet wide. And I mean, you know, and they're 400 years old. And you're just, and I'm reading on these tapestries. They're in some castle and they had a So I start reading on these things. You know those guys that do those tapestries? They do them backwards. I mean, they, they do it from the rear. And you, you've, you've seen that. You, you, you'll, most of you, you see a tapestry? And, you know, it makes sense when you see, but on the other side, you can't see what's there. That's what God's doing. God's weaving a tapestry through all these human experiences and all these events. God's in complete control. He's in complete charge. So this guy says, hey, I'm going to be harder on you than you can even imagine. And as a result, look at the response. Verse 16. When all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king saying, what portion do we have in David? You know, his grandson was a great king. They united with him. The northern tribe. David united all the tribes. That was one of the things he did that Saul couldn't do. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. That's David. Every man to our tents, O Israel. Now look after your own house, David. In other words, we're out of here. So Israel departed to their tents. Uh, but as for the sons of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah, Rehoboam reigned over them. Uh, look at verse 19. So Israel has been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. You know what this guy did? Right out of the box, this guy split the kingdom. We had our civil war. We split as a nation. Horrible time in the history of our nation. Horrible time. Uh, that's what Rehoboam did. Uh, so I look at this guy, and here's what I see. I, I see a guy who wasn't smart enough to listen to wise counsel. So here's my question. Who are you listening to? Who are the guys, who are the guys that uh, throw weight in your life? 
who are the guys that you seek out? Who are the guys that uh, uh, give you input before you make decisions? Because you see, uh, you're a king. And you've got a stewardship and you've got a domain just as this guy did. Here's something else. He dealt with them harshly. Let me tell you something. Good fathers don't do that. Good fathers aren't harsh. Uh, good fathers are firm because they have to be firm. Good fathers discipline because they have to discipline. Proverbs says, discipline your son while there is hope. And you better do that. You see. Because you love him. Uh, you don't let him get away with everything. You, you, you guys know this. You see? But disciplining a kid doesn't mean you're harsh. Disciplining a kid doesn't mean you're abusive. Disciplining a kid doesn't mean you rip him up emotionally. See? That's not how you do it. You say, well, see, that's kind of what my dad did to me. Oh, well, then you put a new link in your family chain. You don't have to do that. Here's a second snapshot of this guy. Uh, I'm going to summarize what I just said. He split the kingdom. Rehoboam split the kingdom because he was harsh instead of wise. Uh, Alexander uh, White said this. This is a great statement. He said, by one insolent and swaggering word, Rehoboam lost forever the ten tribes of Israel. And all of Rehoboam's insane and suicidal history is written in our Bible for the admonition and instruction to all hot-blooded, ill-natured, and insolent-spoken men among ourselves. I love that. Anybody here have a hot temper? I do. I'm not going to show it here, but come over to my house and you'll see it every once in a while. See, I mean, I never do that here. What would you guys think? <laughs> but shoot, I'll do it at home sometimes. I'll fly off. See, you do the same thing. You know, my problem is I kind of tend to be like this guy at times. You know, a little swagger, insolent, get a little proud sometimes. That doesn't make for a good leader. It's a lousy leader. give you a third one. You guys still with me? You guys warm in here? I'm a little warm. A lot of hot air in here. Coming this way, I might add. And it was hard. Ooh, that was harsh, wasn't it? Uh, here's the third thing. We're going to move on with Rehoboam. Uh, he had a lousy start. But here's another snapshot. Rehoboam momentarily obeyed the Lord. Uh, let me show you where that is. Go to Second uh, Chronicles 11. So he goes home. The ten tribes take off. Hey, we're out of here. We're done with you. We're out. Uh, <clears throat> uh, they, uh, they elect Jefferson Davis as their president. Uh, actually, they didn't. But they got Jeroboam. Again, we'll see him next week. Uh, so the nation split. I mean, this is serious. This is serious breach. Uh, chapter 11, verse 1. Now, when Rehoboam had come to Jerusalem, that's home for him. That's where he lives. He assembled the house of Judah and Benjamin. Those were the two tribes he had. 180,000 chosen men who were warriors to fight against Israel to restore the kingdom of Rehoboam. Hey, he's going to show those guys who's in charge. 
He's getting his boys, he's getting his army, he's going up there, he's going to whip these suckers, and he's going to whip them into submission. But the word of the Lord came to Shemaiah, the man of God, saying, you know what's interesting when you study these kings? For every king, there was a prophet. I tell you, I love these guys. When you read some of these prophets, some of these guys, they hardly get a mention. I'm going to tell you something. These, these guys were men. These guys had some guts. These guys just stood up and just flat out said it. They were not trying to win friends and influence people. They looked that sucker in the eye and say, here's what Almighty God says. You can cut me. You can draw and quarter me. I don't care what you do. Here's what God says. They were men. Shemaiah is one of these guys. Uh, the Lord speaks to Shemaiah, saying, Go speak to Rehoboam, son of Solomon, king of Judah, and all Israel and Judah and Benjamin, saying, Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his house, for this thing is, is for me. Now catch this. So they listened to the words of the Lord and returned from going against Jeroboam. For some reason, this guy obeys. But it was a momentary, fleeting obedience. Uh, I can't go into everything uh, from verses 13 to 21. But basically, you should understand. Look at verse 17. There were some godly people that were worshiping the Lord and who loved the Lord that were part of that southern kingdom. And there are actually some from the north who came back down and moved to be a part of the worship temple worship in Jerusalem. Look at verse 17. And they strengthened the kingdom of Judah, that's Rehoboam's kingdom, and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years. For they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. Did you catch that? For three years, this guy was obedient. Uh, now, during that period of time, what he started to do was, if you jump up to verse 5, what he started to do was, he started to fortify cities to protect himself from the north. Uh, he lived in Jerusalem, I'm in verse 5, and built cities for defense in Judah. And then you can read all the cities that he started building up. 11, he strengthened the fortresses to put officers in them, stores of food, oil, and wine. He put shields and spears in every city and strengthened them greatly. So he held Judah and Benjamin. Now it looks like, on the surface, you can say that's, that's just a smart thing, that's a good thing. That was an obedience to the Lord. But we're going to see in a minute that he did that not because he was trusting God. He did that because he was trusting in these fortified cities. See, whatever you trust in, other than God will ultimately be taken away from you. You ever had that happen? You ever get a financial plan set? Nothing wrong with a financial plan. You ever get a retirement set? Nothing wrong with a financial plan. What happens is, is when we start trusting in the plan. You start trusting in that plan, you start loving that plan, you know what's going to happen to you? You're going to lose that plan. God's going to interrupt your plan. Now, will God take care of you? In spite of your plan not working? Yes. He'll just scare the tar out of you. <laughs> you see, because when you had your plan, you were cruising. But now your plan's gone. Now it's frustrated. Now what are you going to do? Now you're having to trust God. God will take care. He'll provide. He'll make it. He'll carry you, as Psalm says, He'll carry you until death. Isn't that great? You see, how do you know this guy relied on his fortified cities? All right, jump over to 12. Chapter 12. You guys still there? Okay. Now it took place. This is this is this is wild. 
This is all time. Verse 12, 1, you got to underline. It took place when the kingdom of Rehoboam was established and strong, that he and all Israel with him forsook the law of the Lord. Boy, I mean, you talk about a significant statement. There's another king named Uzziah. And there's a phrase about Uzziah. He was marvelously helped until he was strong. And then he got proud. <coughs> there's danger in being strong. And, you know, sometimes we get frustrated with God because there are areas in our life that we just can't seem to get together. There are areas in your life where there's weakness. And you're working real hard to get rid of the weakness and get strong. And sometimes God frustrates that. And you know what God's doing? He's doing you a favor. Because the fact of the matter, see, you don't know your own heart, and you don't know what you can handle. I get worried sometimes. Not about other people. I get worried about me. About asking God. I just, I just be honest with you. I never ask God to expand my ministry. I never do it. I just don't do it. I ask God to bless me. I ask God to make me effective. I don't ask him to expand it. You know why I don't? Because I don't know if I can handle the expansion. I don't know if I've got the maturity for it. And if I don't have the maturity and God put me in a place that I couldn't handle, that'd ruin me. So I just, you know, I, I say, Lord, would you bless me? And God knows what, he, he knows where I need to be, and he'll take care, and God blesses me. But I don't want to presume on God because I don't know where I am. Does that make any sense to you guys? He knows what's best for me. He knows the road I take. Just serve in the post that he's put you at. He's assigned you. Just serve faithfully there. If he wants, you know, Hendrix used to say, Albert Hendrix used to say, it, it, what did Hendrix used to say? <laughs> if we, Hendrix said, if, if I will be concerned about the depth of my ministry, God will take care of the breadth of my ministry. There's wisdom there. Okay, this guy gets strong, and then they forsake the word, the Lord. Look at verse 2. And it came about in King, King Rehoboam's fifth year. See, you see the momentary obedience? This guy was doing okay for about three years, and then what happened? He, he's like one of those fireworks, you know, un boom, boom, unbelievable. And what happens? He's gone. This guy did all right for a while, but he couldn't sustain the obedience came about in Rehoboam's fifth year because they had been unfaithful to the Lord, that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem with 1,200 chariots, 60,000 horsemen. List all these guys. The men who came with him were without number. He captured, this is wild, he captured the fortified cities of Judah and came as far as Jerusalem. See, there's your hint as to what his motivation was in building those fortified cities. Was he doing that out of obedience to the Lord? No, he was doing that because he wasn't trusting in the Lord. And, and what you depend on ultimately other than the Lord will be taken away. So all that work he put into those cities, every single one of them were taken. Um, look at verse 5. Then Shemaiah the prophet. Here comes Shemaiah again. Here comes the guy that's going to tell it straight. Um, you know, and Shemaiah 
uh, had his uh, ministry headquarters in Jerusalem, and he had his, uh, you know, his big, you know, I don't see, you know these things about these prophets? These guys just showed up. They, uh, they were just guys. They just, I, mean, I, I wonder what the guy did for a living. Because they tended not to pay prophets. You see? They, he didn't have a great benefit package. Uh, Shemaiah shows up, comes to Rehoboam and the princes who had gathered at Jerusalem because of Shishak, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, you've forsaken me, so I have also forsaken you to Shishak. So the prince of Israel and the king humbled themselves and said, The Lord is righteous. But when the Lord saw that they had humbled themselves, see, here's again another flash of momentary obedience. The word of the Lord came to Shemaiah saying, They have humbled themselves, so I will not destroy them. But I will grant them some measure of deliverance, and my wrath shall not be poured out on all Jerusalem by means of Shishak. In other words, I'm glad they've humbled themselves. So I'm not going to do what I was going to do. But look at verse 8. But they will become his slaves so that they may learn the difference between my service and the service of the kingdoms of the countries. In other words, see, God says, I'm going to teach this guy a lesson. He didn't want to serve me because he thinks that's hard. I'm going to show him what's hard. I'm going to let him work for this, this, this Egyptian king. Hmm. You know, the Christian life is hard, guys. Don't anybody kid you. But there's a life that's harder. The Bible says the way of the transgressor is hard. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says, Rehoboam refused to serve the Lord or the people, so he ended up serving Egypt. God wanted him to learn the differences, the difference between his easy yoke and the heavy yoke of sin. Some people must learn the hard way. No matter how strong you think you are, your strength becomes weakness if you forsake the Lord. Rehoboam relied on his fortified cities for protection, and the Egyptians took every single one of them. Solomon's treasures became Egypt's spoils because the king turned away from God. The king and the elders humbled themselves before God, but they could not escape the consequences of their sin. God spared them from wrath, but he permitted them to suffer. Alexander McLaren stated, Every sin is a mistake as well as a wrong. And the epitaph for the sinner is, Thou fool. And that's tragic. Because, see, the wisest man who ever lived, Solomon, raised a fool. That's a tragic statement. And it's a tragic fact. Give you another snapshot. How many we got here? Is this three or four? Three? Yeah, we're getting low on the roll. That's right. Battery's going out here. Here's the next one. Um, Rehoboam finished his life not in the Hall of Fame, but in the Hall of Shame. Note, if you would, chapter 12, verse 14. This is what's written over this guy's life. See, this is the history of, uh, of Rehoboam. And he did evil because he did not set his heart to seek the Lord. Momentary flashes here and there of humility, uh, of humility. Momentary flashes of obedience. But across the board, what was this guy's problem? Well, his problem was he had heart trouble. He had serious heart problems. Spiritual heart problems. See, from his heart, from his heart of heart, from his gut, 
He didn't love the Lord. Didn't seek the Lord. Didn't want to know the Lord. Didn't want to follow the Lord. Uh, would do it outside. Would do it externally. Uh, th this guy. This guy would make a good American. I think. Um, remember the Sunday after 9-11? You couldn't get in this joint. I mean, they literally turned people. They sent them away. That just wasn't true here. That was true in every church in Dallas. That was true in every church in America. That was true in New England. Why? Because people were shaken to the core. Uh, that's what happened to this guy when Shishak shows up from Egypt. How many of those folks were in church the second Sunday after 9-11? No. Why? Uh, because, see, they had, a momentary, they had a momentary bit of concern because their affluence and their prosperity and their peace was shaken. So what's the history of this guy? See, God has a hall of fame. It's Hebrews 11. It's uh, the hall of faith. Uh, the baseball hall of fame is where? Cooperstown. National Football League hall of fame is in Canton. Uh, God's hall of faith is Hebrews 11. It's the men and women who live by faith. God's hall of fame is the hall of faith. People that live trusting and depending totally on him. And then you get to verse 16. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Now, what does that mean, he slept with his father? It means he died. He died. Uh, let me throw something out to you guys. Just as Rehoboam died, every guy in this room will die. Um, reading this book by Thomas Watson called The Mischief of Sin. This thing was published in 1660-something. And, uh, and then it was lost. And then someone found a copy of it back in like 1986 in some old home in England. Uh, this thing was out of print for 300 years. The Mischief of Sin. I've been reading it. I was able to visit Watson's Church in London. Uh, it was pretty neat. Um, he has a chapter in here called An Alarm to Sinners. And uh, then he has a section called Four Effects of Contemplating Death. This guy's real big about thinking about death. Most of us aren't. Most Americans don't want to think about death. This guy says it's a good thing. In fact, he says... By often, by often handling the serpent of death, it will be less frightful. I like that. If you pick up a snake, you're not going to be real afraid of the snake. Your fear is going to go away. That's the thing about death. If you think about it, you'll get more comfortable with it. And see, it's really something we ought to consider because uh, it's going to happen to all of us. Real quick, he says there are four benefits of thinking about death. My point is Rehoboam died, you're going to die. And you're going to be history. Um, here's, the first, here's the first effect of contemplating death. He says it humbles us. It humbles us. Why should we set up the flags and banners of pride when we are but dust 
and rottenness. The thoughts of the grave would bury our pride. One of the problems that we get into is that when we're tempted to sin and do something really stupid, we don't think of the long-term results and the consequences that are going to accrue into our lives. We don't think. Second effect of contemplating death. The thoughts, by the way, he calls death throughout this chapter. He calls it a sudden change. I love that. <laughs> All the way through, he'll talk about sudden change. What's, it, what's that? It's death. Suddenly, you're going to change. Suddenly, you're going to die. The thoughts of a sudden change would be an antidote against sin. And he's right. If you think about the fact, as he says here, that tonight be the night where the Lord will take you home and you must give an account of your stewardship and of your kingdom, that's an antidote to sin. If you think about the fact, I might die. You ever think about death, guys? Do you think about it? You ever think of the brevity of death, of life? You ever think, in death, there's brevity to death because <laughs> it comes quick. But see, we walk around acting like we're going to live all the time. Hey, man, you might be dead by the end of this week. I might be. We have no guarantees. That ought to affect how I live my life tonight and tomorrow. Third positive effect of contemplating death. The, once again, the thoughts of this change would cure our inordinate love of the world. He goes on and talks about our love of money, our love of things. Our love of more stuff. Fourth, the, th the serious thoughts of our last and great change would enable us to spend our time better. That's worth the price of admission right there. If you think about the fact that you're going to die, it's going to change what you do with your life. It's going to affect where you spend your time and what you're doing with your time. Um, I'm done, but I got four questions to all the kings in this room, because we're a room of kings. We don't call ourselves kings, and I won't tell your wife I called you a king, <laughs> but we're kings. Here are the four questions. Number one, just answer these in your heart of hearts. Honestly, what kind of king are you? What would those under your authority say? Do you listen? Are you harsh? In your gut, you know the answer to that. And, and if you are, if you are that way, knock it off. Give your life to Christ. Ask him to change you from the inside and make you a new man. He can do that. He's done, he's done that with guys sitting all around you. He does it all the time. God's in the business of changing guys. God's in the business of taking up screwed up guys and start building them into the image of Christ. It's a great thing. It's a wonderful opportunity. It's an option for you. Second thing, do you put a heavy yoke on your family? Are you tough to live with is what I'm asking. Do, you, do your kids resent you because they should? I'm asking if they have good reason. Sometimes kids don't, but I'm asking you if they do. 
All right? If, that, if the answer is yes, then you know what you need to go do, don't you? You need to start moving in the path of righteousness and get this thing, get this thing right. You get your heart right before the Lord. And I'll tell you, man, you repent and you say, Lord Jesus, this is true about me. He'll move heaven and hell to bless you and to restore those relationships. Three, who are your advisors? Who are they? Who are you listening to? Here's number four. This is hardball. This is fastball, high and inside, coming right at your chin. If you were to die tonight, would it be Hall of Fame or Hall of Shame? And you know, guys, you might say, hey, man, it's Hall of Shame. Then come to Christ and let him cleanse you and wash you and change you and make you a new man. That's the gospel. It's the greatest thing in the world. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for these guys. There's nothing more thrilling in the world than to be with a bunch of guys that love you. Greatest thing in the world. Uh, David had his mighty men. We got mighty men right here. This is a great, this, this is wonderful. This is a thrill. And, and, and Lord, we're, we're, uh, we're, we're just shooting straight here because that's what we need. And uh, we're so thankful, Lord, that you know our hearts. Every guy in this room is screwed up. We've all failed. We've all fallen short. Shoot, we, we, we've done it this week with our wives. And, but, but Lord, the question is, when we do that, how do we handle it? How do we respond to it? Lord, I pray for the guys that are here tonight, and they're, uh, that, and they're just thinking about the years they've lost. I don't want these guys to walk out of here discouraged. I want them to walk out encouraged. That the years which the locusts have eaten, you will restore. I, I pray, Lord, for some of these guys who have deep regrets, that five years from now, they won't believe the favor and blessing that you have poured on their family. I pray that they would see monumental change in the, in the quality of family relationships that they have. And Lord, I pray for each and every one of us that you'd give us the wisdom uh, to live wisely. Lord, deliver us from being stupid. Deliver us, Lord, from acting like we're 15. Lord, increase our quotient of kindness. I pray that for me. Help me to be more kind at home. I always pray that. I can be so direct at times. Lord, uh, infuse those massive amounts of kindness and tenderness that I need. We are so grateful to know you. We're so grateful tonight that we're not studying the Quran. We're so grateful that we're not bowing towards Mecca. We're grateful that we know the Lord Jesus Christ in his word and we've been set free by the truth. We praise you. We worship you. You've been so gracious to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.